0: Welcome to Law in the Family, a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section, providing insights for lawyers about the practice of family law in Pennsylvania. The information shared during this podcast is for general information purposes only. Nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create, and receipt or listening does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the podcast guests, and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association.
1: Welcome to the Law and the Family podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Anthony Hoover, along with my co-host Aaron Weems. And today we have Alex Langen from Langen Financial Group. Alex is an attorney, a smart attorney at that, and I think has has changed the direction of his practice. Alex, welcome. Tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me here. Excited. So as you mentioned, I am a partner in Langen Financial Group. We manage together with several other advisors about two billion in assets, and some mix between group retirement plans, institutions, business. And individuals. I am also a professor of law at uh, Widener Law School, and I am an adjunct business instructor at Messiah uh, University.
1: Great across all, all realms, and you know, like imagine you you are a, a licensed uh, attorney, right? Um, yes, absolutely. <laughs> so you have that, have have that yep. as well. Um all right. So the the reason we have you on here today, which you know I just find interesting about you know how you help your clients, it's just helping clients, I mean, certainly in the traditional roles, but then also helping clients grow their wealth in in more non-traditional ways, one of which being cryptocurrency. So just tell us about that.
2: Absolutely. So it's important to have a diversified portfolio across not just investments, but other opportunities. So although I don't advise individuals on Cryptocurrencies and this shouldn't be taken specifically as investment advice. I'm happy to talk about it. Cryptocurrencies it, it can mean a lot of different things. Mostly people think of Bitcoin or they just they mention Bitcoin in and of itself, as well as Ethereum. Those are obviously the two largest, but there are hundreds, uh, if not thousands, at this point of different cryptocurrencies. That's just out there. And you have to be very, very careful. There's been a lot of scams that have happened with it. So you have to really do your research
1: with it. All right. So let's do our best here in an efficient manner to try to describe the basics. The first cryptocurrency, what was that? Bitcoin. When did it start?
2: Right around 2013. It was actually created by people don't even know if the gentleman was a real person that created it, although it, he may be unmasked here. So it was a white paper that's published, and this is how most cryptocurrencies begin, It's based off of white papers. Bitcoin was a decentralized platform, meaning that computers can talk amongst each other and that they each have to independently verify something to make it true. And once each one independently verifies, you cannot go back to that blockchain and change it or else that would completely change the blockchain.
1: Uh, all right. So I heard a word that you, you said there, blockchain so what what is the technology that supports cryptocurrency? It's blockchains all coming together.
2: So a blockchain is an individual piece of information that typically contains three different things, one being some numbers in that's verified, a key, and then it would be whatever the other remaining thing is locked in. So it shows a transaction, a date, it connects to the previous transaction that occurred and then eventually the third transaction will, will piece it all together. So it becomes a part of this chain.
1: So there must be some centralized computer, like one single person controlling all of this. Is that right? That's, no, that's the beauty about it, is that it's decentralized. So there's no one uh,
2: central location. There's not like a bank that is actually monitoring, recording everything. There's all these different hubs set up for masternodes that are set up that actually are recording everything independently from one another and then verifying it independently.
1: And you said these hubs and, and independently and in verifying each of these transactions. I mean effectively we're we're talking about how many computers out there verifying. Do you, so do you it, even know I mean
2: No, you can look at the hash rate and um, the hash rate is the activity. So it's the different computers that are um individually but simultaneously crunching numbers for it. So you have to measure hash rates to see how many are active at at one given time.
1: So in other words, the the decentralization of the cryptocurrencies, in fact, that is in, in effect one of the biggest benefits, if not the biggest benefit associated with this asset. Explain why that is.
2: Yeah, exactly right. That's one of the biggest besides just the limit or scarcity of it. So one individual cannot go in and change anything. Everyone knows it's true and everyone has independently verified it. So it's decentralized, as I mentioned before, meaning that each independent actor can verify something, can go on to this public ledger, that they can verify everything independently. So not one actor can manipulate anything.
3: Just a real quick question. Is it fair to say that cryptocurrency and blockchain are related but different? Uh, the blockchain is sort of the methodology that, or, or the, the process that allows the cryptocurrency to occur? Exactly. It's a technology that
2: it is a technology created that is able to allow cryptocurrency to actually
3: exist. And so, that blockchain, in fact, can be used in a lot of different applications besides currency.
2: Absolutely. And that's what we're going to be seeing. And that is one of my biggest takeaways that I've personally learned is that Bitcoin, in and of itself, is a source of value like gold. Ethereum's different. It's more, I would consider it more like oil and that it actually is usable. You can obviously buy and sell oil. But it's actually usable. So the underlying blockchain technology, you can use that for other cryptocurrencies and that can have a usability or like some sort of protocol that can run different algorithms or platforms. There's a lot that's going to come out of this.
1: All right. So, you know, we kind of talked about the, the basics and the, the, how this works. Talk about it from a user end. All right. So from a user end, you know, I'm, a, I'm an investor or, you know, it's, it's one of our clients and I have $65,000 and I want to invest in Bitcoin. What can I do?
2: The easiest way to do it is to open up. It's called a wallet is you open up a wallet and most people do this through some different application. Coinbase is one of the most easiest ones to use. So you go on a Coinbase, you verify your identity. You give them all your information because this is taxable. Once you set that up, you have your own wallet in there. Uh, You can go ahead and transfer $65,000 from your bank account into your Coinbase wallet. And then what you do is you convert your fiat US dollars into uh, a Bitcoin. And it would be right around one for one, except there are fees. And the fees with Bitcoin and Ethereum can be very
1: high. So Coinbase, in a sense... I mean, just, just explain what that looks like and, and explain just what the user interface is with that. So it's, you download
2: the app from your phone. So I have an iPhone, you download it You just go through some pretty simple steps. It's actually really intuitive in how you use it. The biggest issue will probably be connecting your bank account would be the biggest issue, but it's as simple as click on the app. Uh, you come up with your username, password, like you do for everything. Once that's set up, it will simply walk you through the steps, and it's it's very, very easy. It'll probably take you 20 minutes, maybe 30 if you're going to verify your identity, and you have to um, take pictures of your driver's license and a bunch of other stuff.
1: Yeah, and, and so in other words, so I have my Coinbase account or, or or whatever other platform I choose to use. I upload actual dollars from it, from a bank account to that amount, so there will be a back-end transaction from other statements and then, where did I buy you know this single Bitcoin for sixty five thousand dollars? Where did I buy this from? So there's it's a marketplace. So
2: people are selling it. You can actually look and see what who is the wallet you bought it from. So it'll show you what transfers in. That's part of that blockchain again. So the blockchain has your the different information that the people on it. So it shows your wallet um, address and another wallet address on there. so you don't know the name of the person, but you have their very, very long wallet address. Um, so, you know, generally where it came from or exactly where it came from.
1: And, you know, for all the family law attorneys out there or anyone else listening to this podcast, how do we know what's in a wallet? You know, what has happened in a wallet? You know, where things went? You know, what can I be looking for, possibly asking for in, That's in a that?
2: Great question. It's exceptionally difficult you have to follow the clues if you're trying to figure out if there is a wallet. So first and foremost, look at all the different bank account statements because you're going to see it getting transferred out. And it will say if you use Coinbase, it does say Coinbase. The problem becomes if they upload it somewhere else. But that would be the first place to look is the bank accounts. Hopefully, you know where all the bank accounts are. There is no way to know unless you have that wallet address. There's no way to know any transactions through it. So you're going to be in trouble if you if you don't know that this that exact wallet exists.
1: And for the owner, however, of the Coinbase account, does the owner have the ability to print a report, extract a report, to show what their transactions were? They do.
2: Yes. Um, so if you own the wallet, yeah, absolutely. It's an itemized list. Unfortunately, it's not very well organized. And I have a feeling from tax time, a lot of people are going to be saying some very unfriendly things uh, about trying to organize this because it's all taxable. So you really have to itemize it. It's probably going to take a very long time through Excel. There's other apps out there that I think will do it for you, but I, I unfortunately haven't looked into that yet.
3: So I've, I've got a question about the discovery side of this. And you, you mentioned a little bit about having to know the address of the wallet. If I were to subpoena, let's say, Coinbase, and I said, hey, I want Anthony Hoover's wallet. Are they going to say we have no idea who that is or am I, go- am I going to need the address or is there some at least what I will call our traditional information that you can use in subpoenas or discovery requests to get some of this information?
2: You can with Coinbase. That is um, they're very friendly in the U.S. So you can say, hey, I need Anthony Hoover. Here's a social security number. I need his information. They're very, very good at what's called uh, know your client. So they know them. Uh, they work really well with the U.S. There's a lot of other apps out there that do not. And it could be as simple as they can take it and do what's called a cold wallet that is offline. They can put it on a USB and have, you know, you could have 200 Bitcoin easily on a USB. And this is, there's been stories about their horror stories that they have and they've lost it. Well,
1: so well sorry. So hold, so hold on a sec. So taking, take it back and describe it a little bit between a cold wallet and a hot wallet. What, what, are, what are the difference there? Hot wallet is
2: connected to the internet. It's live and it can be usable. A cold wallet, there is no outside connection. It's stored somewhere offline
1: and so coinbase is
2: a hot wallet or or cold wallet exactly it's a hot it's a hot wallet yep because it's connected to the internet it's plugged into online to the internet you can do you can transfer to and from wherever you want
1: and and so there there is the ability to transfer from a hot wallet such as coinbase to a cold wallet that just does not exist or doesn't exist on it doesn't exist on online there's no record of it the last thing
2: you'd see is that Again, you would see on the blockchain, there would be the final one would be your Coinbase wallet transfers to this, this other wallet, and, and that would be it.
1: Okay. Um, now, I've heard you say several times, you know, this is all taxable. And I believe that that is all still, by and large part, being figured out. But when you say <laughs> taxable, in what way? Are you talking capital gains? So yes, it's interesting enough, there isn't much out there. So you hold it
2: within a year, ordinary income tax. And again, I'm not giving tax advice for this, but typically this is how it's done. If you sell within a year, it's considered ordinary income tax. Hold it longer than a year. It's capital gains tax. The infrastructure bill that just passed actually had a crypto tax on there that would make everyone responsible for kind of tracking and everyone's responsible, either mining or whatever, it's taxable. So that's getting worked out see. that doesn't go into effect until 2023 um, and there's already been a bill uh, proposed to amend it
3: And, and if I'm mis- if I'm not mistaken, I think part of that bill sort of creates a safe harbor for acknowledging your crypto holdings uh, not unlike what we saw with the offshore accounts a couple of years ago they we, we were given a, a period of time in which to come clean otherwise after that date certain, uh, the repercussions were significant. Do I have that right?
2: Yes, although it's significantly easier to hide something with a cold storage and the cold wallet than it would be otherwise than an offshore account because it's completely disconnected from anything. It's like having cash under your bed.
1: So in other words, if someone is interested or if you are concerned that the the other side or a party in a case has the utmost sophistication in hiding financial resources, is that person going to be using Coinbase? Absolutely not.
2: Um, They will be using outside. There are so many other apps to use that is not. They're decentralized decentralized so that there's no one central location. Like Coinbase is a central location that keeps track of everything. That's why you can go to them and say, hey, I need this information because they have it. You go to somewhere that's decentralized. There's not one party that has all the information there that you can actually go and talk with. So a sophisticated person could easily get around it. What you'd have to do is... Track their bank accounts to see where the
3: initial um, the initial transaction took place. In relative to the cold storage of a cryptocurrency, if you just have possession of it, do you need anything else? I mean, is that is that something where where verifying ID? This is where the the anonymity of the cryptocurrency comes into play. That as long as you have that zip drive to plug in and access, you can use it. So you can
2: actually. Keep it all online as long as you can memorize everything. You can go anywhere in the world as long as you can memorize it. You don't need anything. That's the beauty of of it. Um, If you do have it in cold storage, typically what you have is called a multi-sig. So multi-signature, it's like a a password. Um, And you need, they they give five out. You need three of them. What's usually recommended is you give two to uh, two separate parties. And then you keep the other three because then they can't do anything with it. But yet you're storing it um, somewhere safe. Um, Hopefully, somewhere safe, and then you can use those three of the multi-sigs you use to unlock that cold storage. Is how it's usually done. You need some special things for it. If you do just happen to put it on some USB drive, you don't need it. It's just there. Uh, But the more sophisticated people are using multi-sig.
3: And if I if I mess up my password five times, does it disintegrate? It's more than five times, but
2: it could erase it all. Yes, it could lock you out of it, and that's happened to one person. If you recall, it actually happened to somebody that has a lot of money stored, and they said, if anyone can help me figure this out, the most that I heard was that, hey, we can give you a couple extra attempts. But yeah, I think they lost mm-hmm. hundreds of millions of dollars.
1: All right. So we, we've been talking about Coinbase. We've been talking about some of the other decentralized uh, ways to hold cryptocurrency. Just some other very popular, from what you've seen, Alex, just other Popular platforms that individuals are using to purchase, hold, transact in cryptocurrency.
2: So one of the big ones that people should start hearing about, if not already, is crypto.com. They actually just got naming rights for the Staples Center. They paid $700 million for naming rights of it. So you're going to see a lot more about that. One of the nice things with them is that they actually have a debit card that when you buy into their their token, so they have their own cryptocurrency, it's It's CRO. You buy it. You can buy as little as, I believe, 400 up to 400000 and And yeah, as long as you keep that money on there, you lock it in for six months. After six months, they give you the card. And then you can start using it. They give you cash back, um, and it ranges from how much money you've stored on there. So they'll give you cash back on it. Um, I actually have some friends that use it, and they really seem to enjoy it.
1: Any other popular platform that you're seeing? Kraken. Uses? There's a
2: lot. Coinbase is obviously the most frequently used. Uh, there's Kraken. As I mentioned, Crypto.com there is coin metro there's it's kind of never ending it just depends on what people like i i found the most user friendly is um coinbase and also crypto.com is probably a, a second
1: uh, all right so you know besides moving money around which i think as family law attorneys sometimes we look at clients financial statements and we wonder why so much money's being moved around i'm sure there's a reason for it and our clients' minds. But you know the hypothetical that we're talking about, I had $65,000. I moved it to Coinbase. I bought a single Bitcoin. Now, what do I do? Alex, I mean, what what, what do I do with it?
2: Well, if you lived in El Salvador, you could use it as an, as, as, for transactions. That has adopted it as official currency down there. But you can do it around here. All you need is your phone. So what happens is if you actually want to make a transaction with it, which nobody does this yet because of volatility. Because today it's worth 65000
1: or whatever. Tomorrow it could be worth 70000 The next day it could be worth 55000 Who knows? But arguably, I could show up at your house at a yard sale. You're you're tired of riding your Peloton. And yeah. it's sitting in your driveway. And I want to buy it from you. That sounds C- great. Can, can I use Coinbase to do that with my so you, Bitcoin? You, you could, as long as I have some type of wallet. So
2: I have Coinbase as well. Uh, it doesn't matter as long as you have something. So what happens is you get... You pull it up, you type in how much you want to spend on it. You can do it in US dollars or you can do it in Bitcoin. So let's say it's $2,000 USD. You put it in, um, you hit transfer. um, And then all I have to do is I bring up my QR code. I hold it out for you. You take your camera, you turn it, you show it to it. It scans it. It has a QR code. It gets my wallet. Your wallet's already obviously in there. You just hit send and it's instantaneous. It gets sent over to me.
3: It's that simple. So. And and for all you know, that two thousand dollars peloton you just bought from Anthony, what you used to buy it may now drop fifteen percent the next day, may go up fifteen percent the next day. I know we're seeing I think I see it most with professional athletes that are asking for portions of their contract to be paid in cryptocurrency. Not to kind of put it really simply, but I'm a pretty simple guy, so I will. This would be like saying, hey, I want to get paid with um, you know a mutual fund instead of cash, and I'm taking the risk of whether it's going to go up or down, but I want to put a portion of my salary in something other than U.S. currency, and I'm going to accept the volatility of that, of that compensation, whatever be may. Exactly it. I would say it's exceptionally
2: more volatile than a mutual fund, but yeah, that's exactly it. You can pick what you want to get paid in. Uh, The new mayor of New York just got his first three-month salary paid in Bitcoin. One of the keys about Bitcoin is that theoretically it's going to continuously go up because there's will only ever be 21 million ever
1: made yeah let's let's just getting back to our example though alex i think you explained to me previously however that you know buying a peloton using it for normal services you're not seeing that go on right now and and why it why is that there's a
2: couple of reasons um one it hasn't been uh mainstream adaptation yet so people don't have it. I mean, you and I could do that and great. I'd be happy to take Bitcoin. I would never sell it because it's too volatile. So I'm not selling it. I'm keeping it. I'm hoping that it goes down and drops because I I would buy more. So nobody has it. It, You can't go to the grocery store and, you know, buy your groceries using Bitcoin. Not yet. There have been some people that came out like the second largest mortgage company came out and said they're going to accept Bitcoin. They just backtracked and said no because they can't they can't figure out how to account for it. So they're not there yet. Plus, There's significant fees involved with it.
1: Who's paying wait, so who's paying that? So I bought the Peloton, who's paying that fee? It would come out, I I would net
2: it would come out of whatever you send, because you pick what's sent. And then so it comes out of that and I net less than that. So I would probably argue, hey, give me more. It depends. What what what
3: are the fees and, and why are
2: why are they necessary? So it depends on how crowded the network is at that time, how many people are online. It it depends. They're necessary. I, as part of transaction, it it occurs same with Ethereum. There's gas fees. So that's why people people are not using. So Ethereum' is different to Bitcoin, as I mentioned, kind of the oil analogy. You can actually build on it. A lot of major um Fortune One Hundred companies are actually building on on uh, protocols on them right now. So Ethereum has these gas fees that are very, very high. So what people are doing is they're that's a layer one protocol. They're building layer two protocols that sit on top of Ethereum, such as Cardona. Those fees are a fraction of the cost. So it would be so much easier to transact using a Cardona or something that has a fraction of the cost. And in time, it's going to be a lot cheaper because they don't have the institutions behind it. They don't, you're not paying for a bank, uh, for a building. So in time, when those get uh, mainstream adoption going, it's going to be, it's actually going to be a lot easier to do and instantaneous.
3: So at this point, the, the, the fees, which Again, we're talking about a cryptocurrency, and it seems a little—it does seem non-traditional. But the fees are going back to good old-fashioned cost of use, energy storage, uh, someone on the in the back room that's trans—that's—that's that's recording the transaction. Whatever it is, it's—it's it's still kind of going back to what I'll just call the human cost of having to maintain. The it's taking platform. care of the energy fees. The energy mm-hmm. fees is what's it, it's. The
2: cost of that, so it's it's the cost of that, and it can be as high as 10 to 15 percent pretty easily.
3: So
1: get, getting back to the 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 transaction, and, and again records, right? So if if I was a party in a divorce, um, and I transferred 2,000 U.S. dollars worth of Bitcoin, Alex, to you, can I look at then my again Coinbase? Say it's the most popular. I'm using Coinbase. Can I look in my Coinbase account, and it'll show transfer to Alex Langen, so I know exactly where <coughs> the money went.
2: It will not. It will show my wallet these numbers are very long numbers letters and that'll just show two thousand dollars there so it's not as easy as venmo that shows names and then you can pull a little note what it's for it's it's not that simple
1: and and so in other words effectively unless you know that number associated with you really there's no way of knowing by looking at the coinbase account where it went exactly it
3: but could i as an attorney subpoena that particular wallet and get information on that on that recipient
2: theoretically yes but you'd have to know where it is where it's held I mean, if it's if it's an offline wallet, how do you find it? If it's open, <laughs> so
3: cold storage. So good, you know. so good point. So so if because uh, my assumption would be that maybe it was Coinbase that was maintaining, it, but in reality, I can send a subpoena to Coinbase saying I want the records related to this particular wallet, and they may respond by saying that's not with us. Exactly. And then it, and you it, are it doing this. no idea. And then you're you're basically sending subpoenas to every single conceivable platform you can think of, hoping that you might. Find that needle in the haystack.
2: That's exactly what it is, a needle in a haystack. You might get lucky, probably not. And the well, more sophisticated it is, the harder it is.
3: I
1: think the lesson that we just learned here is that at least as we sit here today, Aaron, our law firms are not going to be accepting payment via Bitcoin due to the transaction fees. I mean, at
3: least as of yet. Right, that that and, and you're selling your Peloton. I think those are my two big takeaways <laughs> um, 2000
2: bucks. Yeah, it sounds good
3: all right
1: so we talked about all right just some some transactions that can be done with bitcoin but alex in in your experience when someone buys bitcoin or cryptocurrency someone buys cryptocurrency what are you really doing with it um i mean the the vast majority of investors they get it what do they do with it they keep it
2: they hodl as wall street bets would say they're holding it hopefully forever as long as it doesn't go up i have seen people that do take it and um they sell it at points just to take profits Uh, A lot of people freak out and sell it at significant losses. The last option is to actually convert it into some other cryptocurrency. So you can take Bitcoin, convert it to Ethereum. You can convert it to, as mentioned before, Cardona, uh, Polkadot. There's endless options.
3: Just to to build on that, so I guess maybe almost in, in the as we go into the future, and this gets a little bit and this gets more established, you could see people that might convert a Bitcoin to a different platform because whether the that's a more stable platform to be able to actually do transactions on it or fees maybe less, but almost kind of taking it out of the the market, so to speak, and converting it into a place in which they just have better or less volatility to be able to use it for more traditional business transactions and things of that nature.
2: Yeah, I would believe that's probably going to be true. Assuming they don't just purchase it outright with uh, fiat US dollars, they don't purchase whatever crypto outright. They also do need to, in some circumstances, buy Bitcoin and transfer it to other wallets so that they can put on some different platforms. So like I transfer it from my Coinbase over into uh my kraken or something wallet so it's just um they may need it to do that to move money from somewhere else because not all platforms sell the same cryptocurrencies or have the same cryptocurrencies readily available to trade so you have to kind of jump back and forth depending what you're looking for
1: all right so going through this scenario one of the parties going through a divorce has a single bitcoin that's all they did they kept it in coinbase um, now we hear we've we've reached an agreement, and the agreement is with respect to the crypto assets, uh, we have an agreement that says they're going to be equally divided. Can that happen?
2: It can absolutely. I mean, you can take a Bitcoin and not you can take it down to I don't know if it's a seventh eighth spot after the decimal. I'm not even sure how far down it goes, but you can I mean, you can split it up very,
1: very small and and just using Coinbase, how would that just theoretically happen?
2: So you figure out if it's a one, this math is super easy. Even I can do it. So if you have one Bitcoin, you just take 0.5 of it and you transfer that 0.5 to some other wallet. Of course, it will net less than 0.5 because of the fees, but that would be how you do
1: it. And then so in other words, to the extent there would be a fee, you don't know what that fee really is until it's after it's processed, right?
2: It tells you before it processes it. It says verify uh, the transaction so you'll see what it is. So, so we're starting
3: to really kind of layer in what the things that are a little bit more our typical language, which is we're looking at an asset that the cost of transaction may be prohibitive or it may require you to gross up the transacted amount a little bit to account for the fees. And now we're starting to get into things that we know, which is, hey, I don't want to take cash out of the IRA because I don't want to have to pay taxes. I don't want to have to do you know, transaction fees. So now it's it is starting to be treated a little bit more like our run of the mill assets when it comes to, to equitable distribution. One question would be is whether or not that's actually taxable too. So I
2: haven't seen it yet because you are if you are transferring it somewhere else that could get flagged. Maybe you can make a note when you're filing your taxes that it's not actually wasn't taxable. You're transferring over because of a divorce divorce decree, but I haven't seen that yet.
3: Right. So, we, yeah, we, we can't say that there's going to be, you know, like real estate, that it's a husband wife transfer. There's no transfer tax. So now we're talking about <laughs> dividing this asset and needing to have to build in tax indemnifications, potentially, um, probably some additional waivers. And that's assuming that we even want to divide this thing and whether it's not going to be better off for someone to offset it with other assets. We're, it carries all of the, I guess, the the risks and warnings that we have for almost every other kind of transferable asset. My guess would be let whoever did it
2: keep it. And because the person that, it, unless they were intimately familiar with how it works, they're probably not going to want to deal with it, the, the ex-spouse. So just Take the money and run. If you really want to purchase your own half of Bitcoin with the cash, fine. But I, as an individual, if I wasn't, if I wasn't in that playground dealing with it, I probably wouldn't want to.
1: And I mean, I also heard with respect to the tax effect to the notion that there's a party going to be receiving either all or a fraction of this investment, you need to know the what the basis was, right? I mean, you need the the person receiving it needs documentation evidencing what the initial purchase price was or the initial purchase transaction because if that recipient sells it someday they're going to have to pay tax on as again as we sit here today all the rules are being written but they'll have to pay capital if um, to the extent it's held in excess of a year capital gains yes yeah they would all right so i mean we didn't talk about this i mean large companies I mean, to the extent large companies are involved, you know, with cryptocurrencies, and I think you touched on it, you know, there was a mortgage company contemplating being paid in Bitcoin. I mean, how is this being utilized in in larger companies? I mean, maybe even small and medium-sized companies. I mean, from what you've seen.
2: Yeah, so Tesla did it, they were accepting it, and then they stopped accepting it. But they're probably going to start accepting it again here soon. The environment needs built out more so that the volatility becomes less and less. The standard deviation just smooths itself out because then it's much more reliable so until that happens i don't think more people are going to mass adopt it for transactions that said a lot of fortune 100 companies are taking it and putting it on their balance sheet as an asset
3: what you just described though isn't that the difference between it being an investment device versus a transaction device the volatility is what attracts people to the investment side If that volatility smooths out, perhaps it's less attractive to investors and it just becomes more of a tool of transaction. Absolutely. It's actually so,
2: at least at a federal level, it's looked at more as a commodity. And that's how it's kind of being regulated. We'll see if it continues to be in that space as a commodity. But absolutely. So long as there's volatility, there's speculation,
1: and people will try to make money off of it. All right, so we talked about cryptocurrency with big companies. Again, not spent a ton of time on this, but the underlying technology, this this blockchain technology, I mean, that, you know, rather than companies, you know, contemplating and maybe putting a little bit on their balance sheets as an underlying investment, the blockchain technology itself, I mean, that companies are trying to and will be implementing that, right?
2: Some companies will. So you don't want to put a a round peg in a square hole. There has to be a reason to have the decentralized – or Yes, decentralized applications for it. So a bank doesn't really need it unless they just want to cut down on transactions. And one thing we haven't talked about yet is smart contracts. So maybe it fits in there. So I have seen a lot of companies take the technology and they're running with it. It's phenomenal because it just makes things autonomous. So people don't have to deal with it. So would you like me to go into smart contracts and exactly what that is?
1: Yeah, yeah, go
2: ahead. So the smart contracts are self-executing contracts. Let's say you're doing, um, this hasn't happened yet, but it's a matter of time, in, in my opinion. Let's say you need to do uh, closing for a house, you got title work. If you can have a uh, self-contract, hey, you put in X amount of dollars for the title work, it automatically goes out, it looks up to make sure the deed is where it's supposed to be, because the deed argue should be on held on blockchain technology. So if you can go out, verify it, that it is held, who, who holds it? And it shoots right back, and it it gives you the the green light saying, hey, this is the owner of the the deed. You're good to go. And that can be done, it can be done instantaneous once somebody builds that out to actually do it. But that would self-fulfill. So it's as simple as you pay this money, the computer recognizes you paid this money, it checks the deed, see who owns it, it comes right back, verifies it to you, and it's done.
1: So in other words, it's a different way to verify data and when i say different i think you mean quicker more efficient and decentralized
2: there's nobody yeah there's nobody there so it's there's no human being involvement all it needs you to do is put give them whatever it needs such as the money here so you pay the amount of money and it will it will fulfill it automatically
0: And, and
3: just so i'm kind of envisioning this we're not talking about a deed as we think about it we're thinking more that this is information on the blockchain the Address, legal description, what have you—that is that's captured on the blockchain. No one's signing any documents. It's that it's it's its own ecosystem of transaction that you are sending money into. That you're sending money in, and it's immediately able to verify that this is all the pertinent information. No more going to the notary. No more recorder of deeds. This is all self-contained in the blockchain. Exactly. Yeah, and that's one specific instance. Right.
2: I, it, it it essentially is a um, autonomous,
3: self-executing contract. But the but concept is like you've you've eliminated several layers of a transaction by having it contained within the, bi- within the blockchain.
2: Yeah, you could reduce fees by 90% pretty easily. And it would be, save you so much more time, too.
3: And I would also imagine, to a certain degree, there would also be a reduction of the potential for fraud. It would, because you need, again, the
2: blockchain technology, decentralized. You don't have just one person saying, yeah, that's good. You need every single computer that's hooked up verifying it individually.
1: I'll tell you, Alex, that was, I mean, that is just, that is just fascinating. Um, I mean, that, that, that kind of data could be verified in, in that kind of way. I think, you know, from a practical respect, I mean, I know, we certainly don't have electronic filing, which is not on the blockchain in many of the counties in which I practice. Aaron, I don't know about you. We're still kind of waiting on that. I think there's probably a little bit of time and I, maybe even a generation until this I'd kind of data. A
3: decade. Absolutely. Yes. I think we should. We'll get DocuSign probably going before we can necessarily jump to uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain and when it comes to legal transactions. Absolutely. Yeah, completely agreed. But we're getting there. But that's that's gonna yeah. be the that's gonna be the progression that we're making.
1: Well, Alex, look, I'll tell you, um, I appreciate you joining us here today. This was this was very helpful with a broad overview and, and brush here. I'm sure you could have gone a lot deeper on a lot of these topics. And speaking of that, I know you're planning here something. We'll we'll put it in the show notes here. Next year you have something planned. What what do you have going on?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, March second, I'm organizing with Harrisburg University a crypto symposium we are looking at hosting an entire day's worth of some of the most knowledgeable people in the space. And we have a bunch of different topics we're covering and we're going from beginners to experts. So we have several tracks we're going to do. So whether or not you're just dipping your toe in the water or whether you know, you're know you swimming in the ocean, we'll have something for you.
1: Excellent. All right. Well, Alex, thank you so much. And thank you for listening to the Law and the Family podcast. Thank you very much, guys. Appreciate being
0: here. Law and the Family is a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section. To learn more or to join the section, visit the Pennsylvania Bar Association website at pabar.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And to catch up on every episode, join us at anchor.fm slash lawinthefamily. A reminder that nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the guests and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Thanks for listening and tune in for future podcasts.